just the last week or two, uh, I bought uh, a new car. But as I bought a new car, I bought an old car. It's new to me, but it's old. And uh, it's like 20 years old and has a whole lot of miles on it. And uh, it, I decided I don't want a car payment and I don't want to deal with that. So I went and looked for an older car. And I found one that looked really good. And it looks good on the outside and the paint looks good and the seats look good and all those things. But I was nervous to buy a car that has 140,000 miles or whatever it is, 130,000 miles. And so what I did is I took it to a friend who's a mechanic. And I was like, it looks great. And the outside looks good, but I need to know that the engine is okay because I want this car to actually get me from point A to point B. It doesn't do me any good if the seats look great and the paint looks great and it looks like the person took care of it, but it doesn't actually get me to where I want to go. And so I wanted him to look at it and tell me that the engine is strong and they've actually done the maintenance that they said they were doing, that it's taken care of, that it'll get me to where I want to go. Because what's the point? Of having a car that looks good, but can't get you down the road, right? That doesn't really help me at all. And so it's important that the engine is is working and it works well, because that is the thing that's going to get me to where I want to go. And, and I was thinking about just that process and going through that and then thinking about all that we've been talking about uh, this year uh, of following Jesus and in the life of Jesus. And as we ended last week with the Great Commission in Acts chapter one. And Jesus tells us to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them uh, to obey that all that he commanded. But in Acts chapter one, the way Jesus says it is he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what it says there and what Jesus says and what we see followed up in Acts is the only way that we're going to do any of the things that God tells us to do is in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. That he is the engine that drives us down the road, that gets us from point A to point B. That all our aspirations and hopes and desires as a church, as believers, as wanting to grow as disciples, as wanting to make disciples, to do any of that, we cannot do on our own. It's going to be the power and work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And so we just finished this series. And what I want us to do this morning is just to think about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we've talked about what it means to make disciples and to go forth and to proclaim the goodness and help one another to walk more fully in what Jesus has done for us. But I want us to kind of shine the light on the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. If you read through the book of Acts, right, we were in Acts chapter one last week, right before the ascension. The last thing Jesus says, go make disciples. And he says, you're going to receive this power of the Holy Spirit. And then you start to read through the book of Acts. And 50 some odd times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is mentioned almost two or three times every chapter. And it says, and they were filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and they had great boldness and they had great grace and they were sharing things and they were proclaiming the good news and they were seeing people be healed. And they were going through all these incredible things and manifestations of the spirit. And you see that repeated over and over in the in Acts in the early church. Acts just takes us from about A.D. 30 to about 63, the first 30 years of the church. And you see it go from just a few people in a room to 3000 to 10,000 to on and on, covering the face of the earth with just a few uneducated people that come together and they go out. And what it tells us over and over is, is in the power of the Holy Spirit that any of this happens. And so I want us this morning just kind of as a reminder that the engine that's going to drive us, that's going to do any of the aspirations we have as a church and as believers is going to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so I want us just practically, as we think about that, think about what it is that the Holy Spirit does. How are we in step with the Spirit? Paul's going to say here in Galatians 5 that we want to be live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. He uses all these different terms. So what does that look like? How do we grow in that? What is it that the Holy Spirit does and how am I aware of that? And how do I walk in the power of the Spirit in my life? And so what I want this to be is just practically helpful as we think about what it is the Holy Spirit does. And so just start here for just a second before we get to Galatians 5. What is it that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit does in our life? And it's quite a list when you start to look at what the Bible says. It says the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That is, it makes us come from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. The only way that we seek God or the only way that we grow in that is by the Spirit working and taking our dead body, uh, spiritually speaking, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but the spirit comes in and it regenerates us. It brings us from death to life that we can see that we're a sinner, that we can see who God is, what God has done for us. And Jesus, that that is the spirit working in you. And so if you've come to faith or you've put your faith in Christ or you're you're being drawn to it or you're asking questions, that is the Holy Spirit working in and through you to do that. But then as you become a believer and you put your faith in Christ, as the spirit draws you, and then comes and takes up resident in and with you in fullness as you become a believer at belief, you get the Holy Spirit and it comes into your life and it unites us with the father through what the son Jesus has done. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so the spirit is sent into our life and he never leaves us. It's a personal God now with you in all things. And the Bible says that the Spirit prays for us. It teaches us. It illuminates our hearts and our minds to understand who God is and what he's doing. And as he's teaching us, he convicts us of sin. He shows us the areas that we're not trusting God fully. But as he does, as he convicts us of sin and he shows us those things, he immediately turns and points us to the finished work of Jesus. And he magnifies who Jesus is in our life. And so it's a a good conviction, a healthy conviction. It shows us the ways in which we are not following him, but then immediately points us to the finished work of Jesus in our life. And so as the spirit comes, it does all these things. It gives us gifts to serve one another. Because the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts so that for the building up of the body to serve one another. God gifts you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit, not for yourself, but for others around you. That you can serve and love them, which also leads to unity that only comes through the Holy Spirit. He comforts us. He guides us. He encourages us. He empowers us to have victory over sin in our life. Not only does he convict us of sin, he then empowers us and frees us to now not walk in those sins, but walk into the fullness of who we are in Jesus. And so as I say all those things that the Bible talks about that the Holy Spirit does, in short, we could summarize it this way. You can't do anything without the work of the Holy Spirit. Not anything that God calls us to, to grow up into the fullness of what we were made to be. And as we begin to walk in the spirit, Paul tells us here that the the fruit of that begins to look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. And all these wonderful things begin to come as we're following the spirit in all things. And so we just need to be reminded 
In order to do these things that God's calling us to, it's going to be in the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, walking with him in all things. And so as we look at Galatians 5 this morning, the way Paul lays that out, he talks about the work of our flesh that is in and of ourselves apart from God, what we would seek to do versus the work of the Spirit. And he gives us some lists and he kind of points that out to us. And I think it's very practically helpful for you to tune to, am I walking in my flesh, in myself, in the way I think, or am I walking in the power of the Spirit? It's been really helpful. And maybe the genesis of this sermon was just the last few weeks with my sons. You know, when they're when they're fighting, (laughs) not that they ever do that. They're perfect because they're pastor kid, right? They don't do that. But when they're needling each other, when they're getting on and they're doing these things and you see right in front of you is there there's rivalry and dissension and and there's anger, fits of anger and there's jealousy and all these things. And we start to read that together and go, what right now are we doing? Are we walking in our flesh? Are we walking by the spirit? And they hear that and they go, oh, wow. Right. It's right there. And so there's a practicality of this that I want us to see and help to discern when I'm walking in my flesh versus walking in the spirit. If everything that I want to accomplish and do and be and grow in that God calls me to is only going to happen in the power of the Holy Spirit, then I want to be tuned to the spirit in my life and not the flesh. And so as we think about that and before we even jump into Galatians 5, one other thing I just want to point out to you as we think about the work of the spirit. God creates from the very beginning and makes us in his image. And it says right there in the very beginning in Genesis one that the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Father, son, Holy Spirit has existed from all eternity past. Perfect community, perfect loving together. And God creates out of that the overflow of that to extend that to us. We are made in his image. And so at the very core of what it means to be made in God's image after his likeness is that we are made to be relational, to love God and to love people. That's the way we were created, right? And the spirit is, is in that and part of that. But in our sin, in our rebellion, as sin enters the world, we sin against God and we decide we can do things without him. And that's our flesh, our fleshly nature that is now invaded in through sin. Sin is ignoring God and the world he created, acting as if we can do things apart from our creator, which actually, if you just logically think about it, makes no sense. If we exist because God says so and he holds us together by the word of his power, there is nothing that we can do apart from his sovereign will. And so the idea that we can function apart from him goes against the very fabric of the way we were created. But as we sin and sin enters and we begin to think that we can do things on our own, Jesus comes to restore us to that relationship with the father. And as he does what we could never do for us, and he takes our sin and he gives us the work of that, he gives us our righteousness. He cleanses us of our sin. He deals with all of it. He then makes a way for the spirit to now come and live with you in all things at all times and walk with you. He restores you to the relationship you were made for. That's the big picture of everything we believe as Christians. That Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And now the spirit lives in and with us in all things. But there is a war that goes on in the life of every single person, every believer that's ever lived. As the spirit comes and takes residence and begins to teach you. And guide you and convict you of sin and point you to what Jesus does and walk with you and all these things that I just read to you that the spirit does. There's a war going on with our flesh. 
our autonomy that I can do this without you, God, even as a believer, as we walk that out every day, I'm tempted to believe that I can operate in and of myself apart from the spirit in my life. And so that's why Paul's talking about this war between the flesh and the spirit. When he talks about flesh, he just means you and the things that you're doing apart from God on your own, believing that you're the center of all things. But as we become a believer and as we begin to walk this out, there's still this war going on. And so listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that you may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is when you become a believer and the spirit comes in fullness, it is the sign and seal that you are God's, that he has done this work in you and you've been sealed with the spirit. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And here's where I'm going with this. That we need to hear this and we need to be reminded of this. What he says is that when we sin, when we walk in our flesh, when we ignore God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That God has gone to great depths and lengths to redeem you, that he loves you with a love that is everlasting, that he has come and laid down his life. He has taken your sin. He has restored you to the relationship you were created for. He is remaking you in and with you and through you. And when we ignore that and we go against it, we deeply grieve God. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he leaves you. It doesn't mean that you are not still in Christ. It doesn't mean that his righteousness is not still effective for you. All those things are true. But I think if you stop and really think about this, you know this to be true, that it grieves you deeply when someone you love does something that's destructive. I often think that God so teaches us about who he is through relationships because we are made in his image to be in relationships. I think he teaches us about what he's like as our perfect father by allowing us to be fathers or mothers. And you know this with your own children when there is sin in their life or there's things that you're seeing that are not good and you desperately want them to do the things that are the way God has designed them and called them to be. And it grieves you deeply when you see someone you love going down that path. And what it says is that the same is true for God. So when we think about the Holy Spirit, I want you just to be reminded of this. That when we ignore him, we walk in our flesh rather than by the spirit that we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve God and our sin. When I think about all that God has done for me and the way he loves me and the grace that he's given me. And that I will flippantly grieve him in the ways that I will. That I ignore it and I go back to my flesh. And so I just want to point that out just as a reminder before we look at Galatians 5. But with that said, if you would look with me at Galatians chapter 5 as we consider what does it look like to walk by the Spirit. As to not grieve the Holy Spirit and not to walk in our flesh, but to walk in the way God has called us to. 
And I just remind you that all the things that he says that come out of that are good things that God wants your best. And what he's calling us to is far better than what we would ever get on our own. And so the first thing that Paul says there in verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And I don't want you to flippantly miss that. That the desires of the flesh are against the way you were created to be. Your very identity of the way God has made you to know and to love him and to love others. And when you go against that, you're going against the grain of the way that you are made to be. And there are consequences that come with that. That it is God's love that he wants us to walk by the spirit rather than the flesh. He says the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And so our flesh is our our sinful nature, the ways that we go back to believing the lie that we're the center of all things, that I don't need God, that I can do it on my own. And as it's infected all things, it gets into our thinking If you look at the very end of what he says last year in verse 25 and 26 of chapter five, he says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. So so living by the spirit is, is this what it looks like to be keeping in step. But then the opposite, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And as we think about what it means to walk in our flesh versus to walk in the spirit, I think that's a good summary to think about it. That when we are walking by our flesh, we have become conceited. Conceited just means to have an excessive pride in oneself. To see yourself as the center of all things. That's at the heart of all sin. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the creator. Right? We're the created being and we make ourselves the center rather than the one who created us. We've become conceited. It's a good summary statement if we're trying to differentiate between walking by the spirit and walking by the flesh. When we're walking by the flesh, we become the center of all things. We see ourselves. We define things through the way I feel about it and the way I like and what I want and where I am in this. And if you think about it that way and then you start to look at this list that he gives. It says the work of the flesh are evident. It's evident when we become conceited. When we make it all about ourselves, the sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I'm just going to stop there for a second because he starts with the first three and he talks about sexual sin. It's not a sermon about sex and it's not to make this the main thing or to say it's worse than the others that he talks about here. But he does start there. And I think it's helpful just to think about why he starts there and why that's a good illustration of what it means to become conceited. To make yourself be the center of all things. And so when he says sexual immorality, what is sexual immorality? What is sexual sin? It's using sex in any way that goes outside of the way God has prescribed it to be. And so God says he's created man and woman, one man, one woman to live in a monogamous, committed relationship for life. And that sex is the function inside of that covenant or that promise. And when we go against that, we're going against the way God has designed his creation to work. 
And so when we do that, I want you to think about that for just a second. The covenant for life is a commitment of lifelong fidelity to your spouse. One man with one woman. I'm giving my entire being to you. Sex within marriage is covenant renewal. Two flesh become one. Very literally, within the covenant of marriage, that's what happens. What God tells us we've been joined together. What God has brought together, let no man separate. And so when the two become one and sex functions that way within marriage and what it looks like, it's this giving of yourself completely to the other person. But when we take sex and we take it outside of the covenant of marriage, I'm saying I'm giving myself fully to you physically, but not in these other ways. I'm fine committing to you physically like this in this area, but I'm not going to share my entire life with you. I'm not going to make a full commitment to you, but just in this way. Friends, that's becoming conceited. I'm willing to use you for my pleasure in this area, but not commit to you in the rest of it. And that's God's design for sex within marriage. Now, there's a whole lot of things that come out of that when we don't do that. And issues and consequences that come with it. The same true as he says sexual immorality and he says impurity and sensuality. Those carry with it. Uh, lust, your thought life, the things where you go. And when you start to think on things that are not good for your own personal pleasure, you're making yourself the center rather than honoring God and loving other people. And so you can summarize all of that in using this thing, this good gift that God's given us of sex that's made for marriage. It is a good gift of God, but when we use it in a way it's not created to be, we become conceited. We make it for me and my pleasure and the way I want to do it instead of what God says and loving others in the way God has told me. Now, I'm not picking on that one. But if you look at this whole list, it's all like that. It's all these things that come out of me placing myself at the center of becoming conceited. Like when it talks about strife and enmity, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, all of those things are interpersonal, relational things that come when I place myself at the center of everything. And I make it all about me and what I want and what I think and the way things should go. Right. You think about uh, enmity or, or anger. Hatred really is what it means. Or strife or division. All of those things that come, uh, maybe they come in a way that we say is justified. You're angry and you're frustrated because you've been wronged. This is where it gets hard when we start to talk about walking by the spirit versus walking by the flesh. I think the Bible tells us that it is good to be angry at injustice. God is a God of justice, and so we want justice. And so if injustice comes on us in our life, we get upset at it. But then it's very easy to take that and transfer that anger over injustice to the person who perpetrated the injustice. And then we're good at saying, well, I'm OK to continue in our minds to say I'm OK to continue to be angry at them. I was wronged. I'm allowed to feel that way. Who's at the center of all that? I was wrong and I'm allowed to feel that way and I'm the one that should get right. It's being conceited. It's putting me at the center of all things. But it becomes really difficult 
when you've really been wronged. Because we should be upset at injustice because God's a God of justice. But then what happens is we take that and we subtly twist it to continue to walk in anger and division and hatred. And we let it start to eat us up and we're suddenly no longer walking by the spirit. We're walking by all these things that Paul says is the opposite of walking by the spirit. It's hard when you've been wronged. It's hard when injustice has come. Uh, I've said this before. You've probably heard me. If you know me, you know this about me. Uh, My brother Jeb was killed in a car wreck. And it was an injustice in the sense of he got in the car with a friend of his who was under the influence. Now, part of that is his own responsibility to get in the car with someone who's driving recklessly and doing those things. And that's what happened. He drove recklessly and Jeb was thrown from the car and he died on the pavement. And you go, oh, that is so horrible. It seems like such an injustice and it is and the sadness that comes with that. And the other two people in the car walked away and they were fine. And then in the aftermath of trying to figure out what happened and what went on, the guy driving the car decided to say Jed was driving the car. And it was really his fault. And what was a horrible tragedy suddenly becomes a great injustice. Like, how dare you say he was driving? There's a good and healthy anger that comes from that. That's not right. And that's not true. And that's not what happened. And when that comes, you can start to harbor these feelings of anger and strife and enmity and all the things that come with it. And you can go, what a liar. That's not true. And that's injustice. And he took my brother and the people who loved him and the injustice is on them as well. And then to say that he did it, how dare he? But then there's this thing that happens. I can share that story with people and they can pat you on the back and they go, you're right to be angry. What a jerk. You're right to hold on to that anger or that hatred because that is an injustice that was done to you. But when we choose to do that, I'm making a choice to not walk by the spirit, but to walk in my flesh. And it's easy to make a justification based on your feelings that what I'm doing is okay. I was wrong, so it's okay for me to be angry and to have hatred. But I want you to look at what God's word says. He gives you this list of all these things. And things like these, and I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you go, in the face of injustice, it's love and joy and peace and patience. The moment it feels like anger. And how do we deal with that? But he says so clearly, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How does that work? How do we continue to have joy and peace and patience in the midst of being wronged? In the midst of injustice, how do those go together? 
I want you to listen carefully to what he says in Ephesians 4 again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. How do you let that go? How do you walk in the spirit in all things? You crucify your flesh with Jesus. I don't think it's a mistake that Paul writes it that way in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The passions and desires of my flesh are to be angry and to have hatred in my heart. But he says those get crucified when you see what Jesus has done for you. When I read Ephesians 4 and it says you forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. It crucifies the passions of my flesh. And you know what happens? It really does. I'm not angry. I'm not angry at the person that's responsible for my brother dying. And the only way that I know that that is possible is because of what Jesus has done for me. All that I have and all that I am and all that will ever be is by the grace of God and what he's done for Jesus in, in Jesus for me. And so when I want to go, that's not fair and they deserve God's wrath. And God graciously in his spirit goes, you deserve my wrath. But I have done what you could never do for you. And you go, you're right. And he reminds me, you forgive others the way I've forgiven you. And you go, you're right. And this incredible thing happens. Hatred and enmity and those wrongs, they melt away. And you go, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. That I can rest in the midst of even in the hardest things that I've ever dealt with in my life. That I can trust, uh, as it says in 1 Peter 2, I can entrust myself to the one who judges justly. That God is a God of justice and he is a God of mercy. And that all things will be set right and I can trust him and the cross proves it. It's why he says crucify the passions of your flesh. You see it in what Jesus has done and so we can rest in that. And so even in the most difficult things in our life, we can have joy and peace and patience and self-control. And so what I want you to see when you read in Galatians 5 here. And you see these lists of things. It's a very practically helpful way to diagnose, am I walking right now in the spirit or am I walking in my flesh? Am I walking in anger and division and rivalry? I was talking to somebody about it this week. I was in my house the other day stomping around. I was mad because the dogs had got the floor dirty and the kitchen was a mess and all these things. And I'm like, kind of, and all of a sudden I was like, Why am I mad? I don't even know. But the cool part is then I recognize that that's the Holy Spirit. Like, what's what's going on right now? And God is so gracious that he reminds us. He brings healthy conviction. He begins to show us those things. It doesn't matter. Who cares? 
God's in control of all things. I can trust him in everything, even with the dirty floor and the dishes on the sink or whatever. And the things that we get upset about, but God continues to produce those things as he reminds us. And so when you read through those lists, they're not there to make you feel bad. We can easily read those lists and go, here's the checklist of what I don't do and what I do do. But that's not what it says here. He says that in Jesus Christ, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That when you see Jesus and what he's done, it changes your heart. It's not a checklist. In fact, he says that real clearly because he says there's no law for these things. What he's saying is this is not a bunch of rules. This is what happens when your heart is changed because of what Jesus has done for you. It melts these things away. Oh, I've not done that one before. Better than me falling off. I've almost done that a couple of times. But when we do that, it's Jesus and what he's done for us that's changing us. And so I'm going to end here with just this very practically helpful, at least I hope, is how do you fan that into a flame in your life? How do you be aware of the spirit and what he's teaching you and what he's showing you? I'm going to say this and this is obvious, I hope, this is you spend time in God's word and seeking him in prayer. But I want to I want to uh, caveat to that. If you have a Bible reading plan and a checklist of this is what I read and I check it off and I did it. That's not necessarily going to produce this. As you spend time in God's word and seeking him, you're asking him to show you who he is and what he's done for you and who you are in light of that. And as God is showing you and teaching you and changing you, he will begin to change your heart and your heart's affections. Jesus says you abide in my word and you will bear much fruit. You spend time trusting me and seeking me and seeing it in this and I will produce this in you. And so we spend time in God's word and seeking him in those ways and in those things. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I in light of that? How do I live in light of that? And that will lead to this fruit of the spirit. But then the second thing I would say to you. Depending on your background, this may seem really natural and some of you it may freak you out a little bit. But do you stop and ask God what's next, Lord? Do you walk through your day in the places you go and you go, God, who do you want me to talk to? Right? The Holy Spirit is God and he is with you and he is personal and he loves you and he has a plan for you and he wants to use you. Do you ever just stop and say, God, what's next? Who do you want me to talk to? Where do you want me to go? What does that look like? How do I do that? And God does that. And he will open doors and he will show you and he will bring you into positions and opportunities that he can use you in great ways. But being open to his leading and his voice in the way he's teaching you. Now, those things go together, spending time in his word and his prayer and hearing his voice and discerning it. This would be done in community. You know, God told me to whatever. Well, we're supposed to do that in community, discernment together. But we should be asking and seeking and believing that he's going to teach us and show us. And then the last thing I want to say to you is as you go, are you doing things where you're becoming conceited and it's all about you? Or is it about God's glory? Is it about showing people what God is like and what he's done for us in Jesus? Or is it all about you? It becomes pretty clear very quickly for me. <laughs> How quickly I can begin to operate in my flesh and I stop and I ask the question. I'm like, well, this is all about me. This is not about God right now. 
But God is gracious in the spirit to convict you and show you and teach you and continue to point you to who he is and what he's doing. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for the way that you transform us and that you change us, that we bring us into a greater and fuller understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that you continue to draw us closer to you, to shape us and mold us. I pray that in that process that we would always remember that you have completed the work and now we're just living out what you've already done in and through us, our identity in you, that it would always rest with your finished work. We thank you that you never leave us, forsake us, that you continue to teach and guide us. Help us to follow you and be obedient to you in all things in every way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.